Hello and welcome to the Matt Belair podcast. As an explorer of the mind and world, author and coach, I have spent a lifetime learning how to push my limits and achieve my highest potential. My mission is to bring you the most inspiring, conscious, and empowering teachers, leaders, and thinkers on the planet. To bring you stories, lessons, and messages that will help you master your mind, body, and spirit. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that wherever you are in the world, you are doing fantastic. What a privilege and honor to be with you again today. We have another fantastic episode of the podcast for you. We have the man, Justin Boydosh on, and we are talking about his new book, Modern Tantric Buddhism, Embodiment and Authenticity in Dharma Practice. So it's not um, tantric as you might think. Uh, we really dive deep in this episode. Uh, Justin's work is really truly amazing he's very humble he has done some incredible work we'll get into that in the bio but he has worked for the new york city uh, department of corrections he is a division chaplain he has done a lot of amazing work and we're going to dive a lot into that in the podcast so some of the things we discuss are justin's background in nepal stepping into discomfort why meditation can be useful the buddhist philosophy on death because he works a lot in hospice as well uh, awareness why awareness is a practice, cultivating awareness of mind, touching the infinite consciousness, understanding what mind is, awakening experiences, uh, the Tulapa Six Nails, three medieval meditation instructions, which are super cool, and so much more. This is a fantastic episode. I know you're going to enjoy it, so if you like it and you want to support, please share it. Um, tag me. Let me know where you're sharing it. Take a screenshot. Share on Instagram. Tag me at Matt Belair. Let me know what you think. Love um, seeing you guys out there, what you're doing, whether you're going for a run or you're at the gym. It's kind of to see where you're listening. You can also leave a review in iTunes. Those help so much with rankings. Please take a moment to do that. And I want to thank Be Plant Based from the United States for leaving this one. And it's entitled Grateful. I listen to this podcast almost every day to and from work. Matt and his guest speakers are fascinating to listen to and so inspiring and knowledgeable. The podcast immediately puts me in a good mood and has really helped me with the questions slash struggles of life by providing so much insight through others' experiences. Highly recommend. Thank you so much for leaving that review. It is awesome, and I really appreciate it. You can also go to patreon.com uh, forward slash Matt Belair and even toss in a buck in the bucket. Thank you to all my patrons. Thank you to anyone who has been a patron and even just did one month. It helps immensely. I really appreciate it, and I want to thank AJ Wakefield for uh, tossing a buck in the bucket. I appreciate you very much. For those of you guys who are interested in coaching and you really want to break through and discover and get very clear on what your life purpose is, you want to design your reality on purpose and you want support, you want the tools, hit me up, matt at zenathlete.com. I can take probably one or two people for January. And if you're very serious, go to mattbelair.com, sign up, um, fill out the email or fill out the coaching form so I can get more information, but we'll be happy to work with you. And if you have an organization and you want to do some training, you want to do some group training or anything of that matter, hit me up, matt at zenathlete.com. Happy to help you out. Also, I am announcing that in January, I'm going to be doing a 21-day challenge. I'm going to be 
crafting this right now over the month of December. So go to mattbelair.com, sign up for the email list so you can get first dibs on that. I needed to start a premium uh, membership. And what I've done is taken a lot of what you guys have asked for, what you want more training in. And we're going to start doing that in the 21 day challenge, getting a lot of feedback from you guys and giving you exactly what you want. So if that is something that you're interested in, and if you want to make 2020 your best year, or you even just want help in a community setting, getting it off to a start, I'm going to be sharing with you what I do at the start of each year and then diving deeper into practices on meditation, mindfulness, uh, life purpose, and all the things that I do and help my clients with so that you can get very clear and start the year off right and also help with any kind of resolutions, uh, finding a resolution, staying to a resolution, all that kind of thing. So if you're interested in that, make sure to sign up for the email list or you can send me a message on Instagram, Facebook, or wherever. So that's it. Uh, Let's get into today's episode before I talk anymore. Um, So wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Taking a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath. And just let it out slowly, filling every cell and every muscle and every fiber of your being with peace, joy, contentment, empowerment, enthusiasm, and ready to take on this amazing episode with Justin Von Boydash. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind Body and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is an American Buddhist teacher and chaplain. He was ordained as a Ripa. Is it Ripa or Repa? A Ripa. Repa. Yeah, the yeah. so uh, the Repa in the Karma Kagyo tradition of Tibetan Buddhism by His Eminence Gosher Giltseb Rinpoche. Right. He is passionate about the preservation of the Tantric Buddhist tradition. From 2012 until 2017, he served as the resident lama and executive director of the New York Gosher Dharma Center and is presently the first dedicated staff chaplain for the New York City Department of Correction. In 2018, he was appointed as executive director of the Division of Chaplaincy and Staff Wellness for New York City Department of Correction and leads all wellness initiatives for the agency. He is the author of the book, Modern Tantric Buddhism. Welcome to the show, Justin Von Boydash. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. How did I pronounce most of those things? You helped me right at the beginning. You did. You did awesome. Yeah, it's complicated, man. It's good to have you on the show. Uh, you're obviously doing some really amazing work. Uh, you just released a book a little while ago. That's right. Yeah, it came out last week. Oh, man. Yeah, congratulations on that. It looks really interesting. Um, why don't you start, because your, your bio is pretty deep. I kind of I took a little uh, few things out of it, but you've been doing a lot. So why don't you give the audience a little bit about uh, who you are, your background, and what you're up to today? Yeah, totally. Okay. So, um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm the head chaplain at New York City Department of Correction um, right now. Um, but I started off as a Buddhist practitioner, you know, kind of, um, you know, back in the day, um, which led me to um, practicing and traveling in Asia. I spent a lot of time in India um, from 1995, which is the first time uh, I went till I still go. I'm going next March. Um, so, you know, it's been a pretty dedicated um, part of my, my life. Uh, I'm a parent. So I've got three, three boys. Uh, and so that's a big part of my life now as well. Um, and, but for me, a lot of, um, a lot of this book uh, is kind of about learning how to find an engaged Buddhist practice in the world 
um, and in, in difficult places. Um, so before I worked for correction, I was a hospice chaplain um, for about three and a half years. And I, I covered Brooklyn and Queens and some inpatient facilities in Manhattan. Um, I spent a lot of time with people who were dying. Um, and at the time I, I was volunteering at, at Rikers Island, um, leading meditation for inmates and for staff there. Um, and, and it's really this kind of, the nexus of, of, of difficult emotion and human suffering and what it means to be practicing in the midst of that, that, that is alive for me and really what inspired a lot of this book. That's amazing. Well, there's, you kind of brushed over a, a lot of things there. It's like, uh, it's, I'm sure it's a lot longer than that. Um, yeah. But what, I, what I'm curious about, I guess we'll, we'll begin with the book. Um, yeah. You know, what are you, what are you hoping to share with the book? And, and just, I guess, you know, for the listeners, what is, you know, modern tantric Buddhism mean? Yeah. So modern tantric Buddhism um, is really tantric Buddhism applied to our life now. Right. But, but I think that um, the central kind of aspect of it is stepping into uh, difficult experiences, you know, stepping into, um, for lack of a better term, the shittiness that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and then within Buddhist communities, um, you know, how we can be um, awake around things like whiteness and patriarchy, racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, all of our biases and begin to take responsibility for those by, um, by really kind of getting to know uh, our blind spots and um, using that as practice. So, um, you know, we live now in a time where we're so divided, um, you know, in the United States, right? And there's, there's so much um, difficulty in terms of identity um, politics and um, what we can allow ourselves to take responsibility for and, and what we can um, see and respect in other people. Um, and modern tantric Buddhism is looking at how we can be better by owning a lot of our crap, like owning a lot of our, the places where we get stuck, the places where we um, might be privileged and ignore that, right? Um, or the way we might dominate other people, um, especially as, as white men, <laughs> you and I are. Um, and, and so, and to look at the discomfort that arises in that too, um, and, and just sit in that uh, and practice with that too. So it's kind of taking meditation uh, off of a cushion, right, into the world, but then also into the, 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 the complexity of, um, you know, the intersectionality of, of what it means to be in, in modern America and, and, and the world at this time. Right. And so what does it exactly mean to be uh, tantric? Like most people associate that with, uh, you know, like the tantra and all that kind of stuff, but I yeah. don't think that's what you mean. Tantric sex, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, really, uh, the tantric aspect of Buddhist practice is interfacing with experience as it arises, right? So, um, visual consciousness, auditory consciousness, olfactory consciousness, um, and, and not really holding back on any of them, right? So it's a very life-affirming practice. It's a very um, appearance-affirming practice. Like, you know, Buddhism often uh, is, is, can, can be described at, at times as being detached, right? So it's somewhat intellectual, um, uh, you know, focused on the... the, the the 
developing an understanding of emptiness, right? Which can be at, it can appear to be at odds with the fullness of our life. Tantra asks us to, to find liberation in those things that we would typically avoid, right? So emotion, right? Emotion is energy, right? And so in tantric practice, we begin to play around with our emotional reactions to things, right? We recognize the power inherent in that. Uh, and we use the power of that to uh, create the causes and conditions for our awakening and to support other people in their awakening process. Um, so that's why in, in a lot of the art, um, there's a lot of sexual imagery and it, it doesn't necessarily represent actual sex acts as much as it does uh, the passion and, and the unification of, of opposites, right? The unification of an experience um, into an experience of totality. Right, which we can do at so you know uh, before before the show started you were talking about you know having having a baby right and so all of the emotion and all of the exhaustion and all of the the stuff that that might arise right as a as a new parent um is all stuff that can be brought into the meditation practice uh, even though sometimes we want to be on top of our game and we'll try and kind of push away the stuff that we don't think is conducive to meditation, right? So rather than, you know, try and um, push all that stuff away so that you can just um, experience peace, step into your exhaustion, step into your like, oh man, <laughs> I need to like get up and be the baby again, kind of, you know, automatic reaction and, and find, you know, recognize the nature of the experience in that moment, recognize awareness of, of those difficult things as they arise. Right. Yeah. When you're kind of saying that, what it kind of makes me think about is just the idea of so many people talk about shadow work these days and, mm -hmm. and we're, we're pushing away a lot of the uncomfortable things. Yeah. You might be upset. It might be emotions that you don't prefer. And what you're suggesting is a, is a holistic view of those ideas. And what I'm curious about, uh, I know that you were in Nepal, you're telling me before the show mm -hmm. and you've, you've trained extensively and learned extensively in Buddhism. I'm mm -hmm. curious your view on where you think Buddhism fits in the modern world today, especially in New York and, yeah. and some of those like principles and philosophies either that you're sharing in the book or that you found very useful and applicable. Is it meditation? Is it perspectives? One of the things I really like is the eightfold path. I think is fantastic. It's just so clear and concise in a way to live and guide your life. And a year ago today, I think it was around this time, there is the Parliament of World Religions that I attended and went to, and there's a lot of different religions there. And Buddhism has been one of my favorites because what I've kind of broken down into a few categories where religion usually will have a consequence. So if you don't uh, do a certain thing, you will have a very intense consequence. And philosophies, and there might be a better word for it, but that's like Buddhism in the Eastern traditions is like, you could do that. And you're not going to have this crazy consequence. It's more like it guidelines and way of life. It's a little bit looser. Um, but even in Buddhism, when I went to China and I was training with the Shaolin monks, they took what I learned in Nepal mm -hmm. and they, they still called it Buddhism, but it was nothing like I learned from the Tibetan monk, uh, monks. It was a completely different thing. And so mm -hmm. I'm curious uh, your view on, on, you know, just generally what, what Buddhism is for the philosophy and, and some of the practical things that someone can use and, and, and uh, apply to their lives. 
Yeah. So, um, okay. So, you know, obviously meditation is, is vital, right? And so that can be anything from a very basic meditation practice like shamatha, where you use, um, you learn how to uh, focus uh, and anchor your mind on your breath, right? Um, to basically kind of, you know, gain a mastery of simplicity. Right, we we're running. I mean, we take New York City. Like we're running around all the time. Brooklyn, you know, we we run around all the time, and and everywhere in America right now, our lives are busy. Right, we've got our cell phones. We've got we've got um, you know social media. We've got all this stuff going all the time. So um, Buddhism offers us a really good counterbalance to a lot of that busyness because the busyness. It's I mean, on one level, it allows us to get so much done. Right. And, and in, the, in the West and particularly in America, I, in one way, you could say that we're very advanced technologically. Right. Um, but sometimes that comes at, at the expense of almost feeling a little enslaved to the technology. Right. And which causes unhappiness. And so in a very basic way, meditation allows us to, uh, you could say, sometimes um, get some room and then at other times it's like it, it it can cut through and and crack some of that automatic um you know almost like addiction that we might have to social media and things like that which is really important um i find in my life um now i'm also a chaplain and i uh, you know i work on rikers island and i'm surrounded by chaos chaos and violence and, and things like that and Buddhism allows, um, you know, because it's more oriented around experience, it gives me the room to examine what's happening to me when I'm coping with being in really intense circumstances. Um, so I could be um, uh, attending to uh, a member of staff who may have died in a car accident, right? And it's late at night, I get a phone call, I need to run out. Um, to a hospital and then maybe notify the parents of this person who's passed away. And it's all really intense, you know, just describing it, it doesn't sound intense, but telling somebody's parents that your, your, you know, your grown child has died um, is, is gut wrenching. Right. And so for me, my, my Buddhist practice allows me to, as I'm in that moment, check in and I feel my stomach is just turning while you watch the parents scream and cry. Right, um, I allow myself to check in with my breath, right? Because I need to hold the space for everybody going through this really intense stuff. Um, if I lose it, <laughs> there's like you know, uh, it's just gonna, it's just you know, gonna fall apart. Um, so the Buddhist practice for, uh, for me acts as an anchor to be able to hold space for others as they go through uh, what can be you know a life-altering, difficult experience. Um, or in, in the cases of, of working with people who suffer from trauma, um, the same thing, to, to be able to um, occupy a place that's stable for the person who feels that they have no ground because they've just gone through something that's so damaging or, or unsettling or, you know, something of that nature. Um, now, like, you know, when I was a hospice chaplain, um, I mean, you know, Buddhism has such an amazing philosophy around death um, that I got to see that play out in, in amazing um, detail. And there's, there's a good portion of the book that kind of uh, is born out of my reflections, both as 
a Buddhist practitioner and then a Buddhist teacher around death and then as a hospice chaplain, looking at what it's like um, for people to go through the dying process and what it's like uh, for their, their, their mental experience um, to go through as they're actively dying and then, and, then, and then right into the death experience. And then also how to be with loved ones who are coping with loss, like, so bereavement, pre-bereavement, and things like that and and so like the philosophy part is really amazing because it really asks us to look at our reactions and and we go through our, our daily lives um, you know sometimes pretty conscious and aware but then often it's kind of like a pinball game and we're just like pew, 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 like you're just reacting all the time right with very little attention um, and then we'll find ourselves you know we go from point a to like point Z you know, really quickly. And then we wonder like, how, like, why am I here right now, man? I'm like freaking out. Um, but all we need to do sometimes is learn how to come back to our body, come back to our breath, right? And, and just understand, you know, check in. And it's like, what am I experiencing right now? I'm freaking out. Why am I freaking out? You know, let me take a little bit of space. You know, let me slow this down. And that allows us to kind of come back to a place um, where we can make a more informed decision, right? So when I used to teach meditation to inmates and correction officers at the same time, um, I looked at, at, at doing this as a way to allow people um, the room to intersect, uh, to, to interject a little bit of like conscious awareness when you're all hyped up and, and, and uh, angry. Right? Let's say you're right about to be assaulted by a highly assaultive inmate. Right? This person's like throwing feces or you know, splash you with urine. And you know that this person has a history of doing that and they, they got their cup, you know, and, and like you can get triggered like it's nobody's business, or you can learn how to be like, all right, man, I got you know, I'm not gonna just, you know, lose it. You know, because sometimes then you make poor decisions and those poor decisions can hurt somebody, they can hurt your career and things like that. And then and simultaneously to the, you know, for the inmate population, I mean, getting pissed off at correction officers, it's easy to do. Um, but how does that benefit you when you're in the custody, in a, you know, in the correctional system, right? If you're gonna lash out. Um, so, and you know, I mean, this is a case for parents, it's a case for teenagers towards their parents, you know, learning how to get a little bit of um, space. In some way you could say, take responsibility for, for who we are and how our, our, our reactions um, happen. And then, and then how we relate to experience as it arises. So like a big part of the tantric path is learning to allow a, appearance like whatever is happening right now to just happen right and we could have all of the conceptual kind of reactions in our minds um going on but what happens if we just kind of let that that burn out you know like a candle right because our mind is just going to constantly be like you know oh wow check out that guy's hat check out his beard you know check out the mic check out the background the background's cool you know, we could keep going and our mind just keeps going and going. But like, when do we have peace? Mm. You know? So it's ultimately rooted, just like every other Buddhist tradition, in, in the experience of peace and awakening. 
right? And uh, the desire for all beings to, to have a, experience a cessation of suffering. Um, but the tantric model allows us in a really dynamic way to jump into all of the busyness, uh, to, to all of the, you know, depending on how we're feeling in the day, the bullshit we might be feeling, um, and the beauty, right? I mean, because, you know, life, life has a lot of beauty in it. And, and how, you know, there's an amazing thing about appreciating beauty without being consumed by needing to own it, right? And so the tantric path allows us to be able to just appreciate amazing things for being amazing and really engage them, really feel them, right? Really interact with them, right? Without holding back, all the while understanding that this is not something I can take with me, you know, to the grave. This is not something I can take with me, you know, the next life. This is not something I can own. Wow, yeah. Well, I definitely agree with all that. And what I really love about Buddhism is the idea of the observer you're saying you might be going through these challenging things and you feel these emotions and you might feel frustration you might feel anger you might feel these things and what i've noticed in let's say the maybe new age or positive vibes or whatever um people i don't you know you can have that view of like it's like they almost don't want to go through that it, it seems like oh it's always going to be perfect what I've observed and think right now, and it could change, I don't know, um, but when I started studying enlightenment and things like that, I was like, oh, there's going to get to a point where I'm going to be floating around on a cloud, maybe like this, it's going to be <laughs> awesome, and uh, my consciousness will be different, and everything will be hunky-dory all the time, and it's going to be great. What I think, it's more grounded in kind of what you're saying. It's like you observe the anger, you observe the frustration, and it seems like we don't want those things. I'm not, a, I'm not angry, right? I'm not an angry person. I'm a positive person. But if you do something that bothers me, my reaction might be anger. But the more you get to that center point of non-attaching to the outside, like your, your feces example is intense, but I use the example on the podcast of, you know, growing up uh, a man. And so I am, let's say in high school and somebody calls me a loser. Well, I got to go fight that guy. Cause he's telling me I'm a loser and I defend myself cause I'm angry now and I got to prove myself worth. It's no different there. It's, it's just a more intense scenario. Same thing with dealing with family members, dealing with a boss, dealing all the, they could be totally pieces of crap doing terrible things, and it doesn't have to affect your emotional state. It does take time, but, but over practice, the, the first time I say like, um, it's going to happen, you're going to feel angry, you're going to want to rip their head off, and you might do it. And if you do it, just okay, next time, mm -hmm. see if you can take a breath. The next time you might feel angry, but this time you don't deck them, you don't react, you don't feel emotion and then reaction. Then you keep going down the path, you might feel really mad, and then it's a little bit easier, and it starts to die down to the point where I give the examples like, you know, I wonder what's wrong with my boss. You know, he just came in here. He was totally unreasonable, very mean and rude. I wonder what's going on, you know, and you have like compassion for them. And that's, that's a possibility. And for me, that's closer to, you know, the awakened being, the enlightened one. It's, it's very human. I used to think it was a superhuman idea, but it's actually a very simple concept, not easy to do, but that's the part of the awareness training because what is it that's getting mad? Is it, you know, what part of me is getting mad? And so when you can observe it with observing things in meditation, and when you meditate, you realize how much of a lunatic you are. And somebody was like telling me today, it's like, I can't meditate. It's like, great. No one can, you know, over time, 
that, uh, um, geez, uh, the teleprompter of your mind, you know, mm -hmm. it's like crazy. You know, the first times you meditate over mm -hmm. time, it gets less crazy. And then over time, maybe there's gaps in the teleprompter. But even if you've meditated for a long time, you might have a great teleprompter day and so much internal dialogue is going nuts, but you observe it. That's the whole point. So when you're out in the world, something external happens, an internal thing happens, but you ultimately get to make that choice. And that's freedom. That's a very big distinction. You know, not being run by your emotions. It's a, it's a huge concept. So simple. Um, but I think that that for me is, is more towards what I would consider an awakened being, an enlightened being. It's somebody that's able to do that. I'd be curious to hear what you think of that rant. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm 100% I'm down. I mean, you know, I, it, it's, it's basically about letting go, right? And when we get triggered and when our identity gets triggered, then we just hold on, right? And it's like, hold on for the ride. I'm going to be pissed off. I'm, I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to relent. And then we're all going to end up in a bad place, right? Um, whether we like it or not. Um, but but it is that that aspect of awareness, which is, it's really about spaciousness and how can we pull spaciousness or blend spaciousness into our experience uh, at any given time. And in the beginning, when, when you start a meditation practice, it can be very overwhelming when we experience just how busy our minds are. Right? And it doesn't have to be like, you know, crazy, intense emotions. It's just like um, almost like restless leg syndrome, but for your mind, right? It's just, you know, moving, like, you know, thing after thing after thing. And, but, but I think you're completely right. Like, you know, within the, especially the Karmakagi tradition, when we talk about um, uh, shamatha meditation, in the beginning, they say, you know, the mind is almost as if, um, you know, it's like a, a mountain river between two, two in a gorge, right? It's just like rushing, right? So we sit down to meditate, like, oh, I'm going to do this because this is good for me. I'm going to do this because this is going to bring me peace. And then you notice, like, wow, this is crazy. This is intense. But over time, if we can allow ourselves to be kind to ourselves and just be like, look, man, I'm not going to judge. I'm just going to keep going slowly, slowly, slowly. Eventually, that experience becomes more spacious. And then eventually it becomes even more spacious. And, and, and within that experience of spaciousness is exactly what you're talking about, is this ability to discern whether or not I need to just jump up and freak out <laughs> whenever I get triggered, right? And sometimes, you know, it, it's just the way it is. Like that thing is so triggering that we make a, mis you know, make, make a mistake, so, so to speak. And, and get triggered, right? But the beautiful thing about it is like, as you said before, like it's not like you're gonna go to hell. You just got triggered. And so you, you, then you become aware of that, right? You recognize that and then bring yourself back, right? I mean, there's no, um, we fail all the time. And in the Zen tradition, you talk about how like the path is just impossible and, and a path of impossibility. And in a way, like, it is. I mean, I, I definitely believe that, that awakening is possible. And I believe that awakening is a, poss uh, you know, a possibility in one lifetime. Um, and that's usually born out of millions of mistakes, you know, millions of little screw ups. But that's where, we, that's where wisdom comes from, to, to understand ourselves and understand, wow, that thing is really hard, you know? Yeah. 
when you're speaking, it reminded me of the quote, and I love this quote. It says, you yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. And mm -hmm. it goes into your internal dialogue. And you're also speaking about awareness. And the other thing that you're speaking about that is important is meditation is a practice. The first time that I sat down to meditate, I sat, I was like for a minute, you know, I'd meditate. I, I don't know if I was meditating as a kid. Um, you know, like when I was young and doing martial arts, like really young, I was meditating, but I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I, I don't know if it was effective. It might've been, but in my teens, I really picked it up again. I started studying it and I sat down for a minute and I got out and, and it's a practice though, because that awareness gives you choice. It's an observation. And even if let's say you get into a funk and, and you're depressed and you're angry for a week, maybe you've been angry for 10 years. You live in New York. There's plenty of people have been angry their whole life. And so, right. If you, if you're used to that, then the awareness can break that pattern. Just ask yourself, so what do I want? I notice that I'm angry. You know, is this a reasonable thing to be angry about? Right. I'm, I'm angry about, you know, somebody at work, I'm angry. You can find a million reasons to be angry and with awareness, you can choose something else and it's going to take practice. It's also how your mind is hardwired. You have this big neural map to says fire off to be angry. You're angry about this guy's driving. You're angry about that person. It's just wired to find reasons for you to be angry. That's what your wiring is doing. But over time, when you catch that and you're like, you notice you're angry and that wiring's going, you say, stop, you bring awareness, come back to your breath. So what do I want? Even though this is, you know, this person, there's a reason, there's an external reason for me to be angry, whatever it is. I choose to feel a little bit more peaceful right now. I choose to um, feel calm. And, and the thing is too, especially being a martial artist and fighting and the samurai back in the day, the best fighters do not fight angry. You can't. Your life is on the line. You have to be so focused. And it's the same idea with navigating this world. And the other important thing that I like in Buddhism, uh, Alan Watts said, you know, in Buddhism, they say life is suffering. And he's like, my translation, it's more like uh, life is frustrating. And every day we get up, there's frustrating things going to happen. We know that it is frustrating. And the better equipped, the more equipped we are to come in with awareness, learn how to have a more empowering perspective, we're going to have a little bit more freedom. And like you said, a little bit more space because it's like emotional glue. You know, somebody cuts you off in traffic and then this black oily goo gets on you and it's your negative emotions, but you're doing it to yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you're the one doing it to yourself and you can actually clean yourself off just by coming back to the breath, deciding what you want, allowing that to be what it is. And, and it takes practice over time. So I'd love if you want to add some comments on that, you're more than welcome. And also, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more about the Buddhist perspective on, on death and what you learned from working in a hospice. I think that's so important. It's such an interesting process. You learn a lot there. So I'd love to hear the most yeah. important things you've learned and 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 also the Buddhist view on, on death and, and maybe what, what happens over there. What's, what's sure. the deal? Yeah. I mean, you know, while you were talking, what I, what I was hearing was, um, you know, born of meditation uh, is a sense of personal ethics. Right. And, and that's an important part of all, all Buddhist practice as well. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, oh, I'm going to follow this set of vows, but for some people that works, um, but you know, the, the practice of meditation allows us to understand the way our mind works and it allows us to understand the way we re relate to others, including the world. And as we gain a sense of greater spaciousness, we begin to understand how to be, 
right? Which is basically what ethics is, is a way to how, how to be in relationship to others that fits into a model that reduces the suffering for, for all beings, right? So once we realize that, wow, you know, I actually have a tremendous amount of power in my reactivity, right? I can actually learn to, um, to kind of step away from difficult experiences when I know that I'm gonna be overwhelmed, right? Or um, that I'm, I should transform these experiences to, to create um, uh, a change in, in, in my experience. And so uh, I just wanted to touch on ethics just briefly because I think it's an important thing and, and um, I think it gets underlooked. Um, uh, especially in, in contemporary times when, with, with the whole mindfulness scene where, um, you know, mindfulness is discussed and, and shared pretty much everywhere, <laughs> you know, and, and there are aspects of it that are really good, um, but, but these things come out of a rich tradition which has ethics woven into it, um, which is important. Um, but as for the death experience, I mean, um, the, the, Tantric Buddhist tradition or the Vajrayana tradition goes into incredible detail around what the dying process is like. And um, typically it's kind of, it, it's, it, it happens before actual death. So we like to think of death or we, we have a habit of thinking of death um, kind of in a really dramatic way that like, oh, now I'm laying here, I'm dying, you know, uh, maybe suddenly or maybe slowly. But, but in the Buddhist tradition, death begins sometimes like months before that. Um, you know, it, it, it's basically um, said that um, in a nutshell, you know, you could say that death is the process of consciousness kind of separating from the body uh, and, and this very fine level of consciousness called Vajra mind moving from one existence to the next, right? And this thing is almost like an indestructible um, a type of consciousness that goes from, from one body to the next body. But how that separation occurs is really different. So it's, it's a little bit like midwifery, right? So like, I've, I've, um, you know, I've got three sons, I was at their births, each birth was really different, right? And, and in hospice, it's, it's exactly the same way. Like each death is very different. Um, the, the, the kind of individual karmic propensities that people have, like the way that we react to things, um, play into it. So if somebody is really um, fearful, and you know, if you come on the hospice, typically, in theory, the best of all worlds is like you have about six months before after dying. And of course, that's really hard to predict. So sometimes someone might come on a hospice and they've got a month, or in some cases, a couple days. But the, the beauty of working with people is that if you, if you, you meet with people who are very fearful, right, or, or experience a lot of anxiety um, around either this experience they're going to be going into or a lot of trepidation about saying goodbye. Like, I don't want to say goodbye to my loved one, you know, my husband or my wife or my kids or um, this life I've built, right? That's, that's, that's hard. Um, so to, to sit with people and in some cases um, perform uh, meditation with them. So um, I had a good number of um, hospice patients who would want to, um, some of them had an existing meditation practice. I mean, really kind of like tailor make it to, to 
this next experience they were moving into and how their bodies were changing um, and maybe getting weaker, um, nauseous, maybe couldn't sit up. So, you know, people would lay down and, and we'd meditate. Uh, and then others were like Catholic <laughs> patients who were like, I'm so anxious. I don't know how to get through this. And then I'd introduce this idea of meditation and introduce it in a way that um, was affirming of their faith. Um, but where we could just get into the nuts and bolts of just trying to relax the mind, right? And trying to ease into the next moment, no matter how uncomfortable that, that was. Um, so there are some really great texts that describe what it's like when, when one consciousness, like the auditory consciousness, blends into another consciousness, into another consciousness, and into the elements, eventually to this experience of Vajra mind. And, and it's described in the book. Um, and and, what, and I, I share three vignettes in the book of, of working with three different hospice patients and just how different the, the dynamics of the dying process were both physiologically, but then also just in terms of like family relationship, right? Where like, um, you know, in one case, uh, and what, one, of the, one of the people was a, a Buddhist teacher. And so here you had a Buddhist going through the dying process, being chaplained <laughs> by me and other Buddhists. Um, and I was witness to this person kind of struggling with their idea of what an ideal Buddhist death should be, kind of failing to recognize that like, you know, this experience sucks for me right now. I'm in a lot of pain. Um, this person had um, a lot of their students around caring for them. And that brought them a lot of anxiety and uh, a sense of lack of privacy. And then it was hard for their students to watch their teacher dying. Um, so the, the dying process is, you know, we go through our, internal, our own internal process, right, um, of letting go. Uh, sometimes that's easy and sometimes that's hard. Um, but then what's also connected to it is the environmental connection to us, right? So um, you can have family who are like, I don't ever want you to go, Matt. Like, I never want you to die, right? And then, you know, circumstances get to where they are and you're at the end of life. And, and that could be like a curse to you, right? Where you're just like, no, I... I see this body this body's going you know i need to go and they're like no you can't go and that pressure um and that fear of letting people down can really play into um you know that process of letting go so that we're not letting go very easily um there are a couple a couple cases where uh there I, actually in a lot of them a lot of cases people were, were beginning to see um relatives who had had passed on before they had you know, in terms of time. So, and in, in some really amazing, amazing cases, um, people would see a, a twin that, that died, maybe when they were both six years old, their, their twin sister died. And I literally sitting, you know, with them in, in their bedroom and they're like, my, my twin sister's like sitting, you know, at the, the end of the bed. Like, can you see them? And I'm like, no, I can't. Um, and, and then, you know, my role as a chaplain was really to kind of sit with them and, and, and ascertain like, you know, what is this person trying to tell you? You know, um, are you scared? 
right? And, and there were two memorable experiences where there were people that were terrified that, you know, I'm gonna go to hell or something like that. Um, and were literally clawing at the bedside furniture as they died. Um, and then there were others who would, you know, I would be in the room with them and it's as if their consciousness in that moment was beginning to pass to a much more subtle place. And they could see lots of people around in the room, you know, that I couldn't see. And they're like, oh, they're telling me to come. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to leave soon. You know, so it's a very, um, very different kind of <laughs> chaplaincy than I do now, which is just really raw and intense. Um, but, but it was a really amazing way to, to look at the traditional teachings on death and dying and then test them out almost, you know, through the scientific process, through being with people going through that experience. There's nothing like it, um, you know, really powerful. Wow, well, that sounds really intense. And I'm curious, did, did were there people that, uh, and I know this, that my aunt had passed last year and she was really worried. Mm -hmm. And there came a point where she's in the hospital. My mom said that something happened. Uh, I don't know if it's a dream or something she had where she then found peace with it. And I was curious if, if you found that to be like common, like that universal force, maybe God, maybe the universe or something comes in for the most part coming in and assuring people in their own way. And the other thing is, do people have insights? Like, did you notice any profound insights, whether it was regrets or, you know, things that they wish they didn't like any common themes in that like life advice or like, you know, now that I'm at the end of my life, this is the thing that I wish that I had corrected uh, long ago. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, with the latter part, um, point, like I, you know, so I, I covered home hospice patients, a lot of them in Brooklyn, uh, and the nurses that I worked with and social workers um, were kind of like, um, you know, Justin is good with these like Italian tough guys, you know, who are at the end of life, who they can't talk to their priests because they don't want to seem weak, you know, um, and so I would meet with them just privately, right, they would say like, I don't want my wife present, I, I, you know, cause I want to like kind of break down and just be vulnerable, right? Um, and there's this one guy, there are actually two. Um, <laughs> this one really intense guy was um, like admitted to me before he died. He was like, yeah, I was in the mafia and all this stuff. And, you know, I hurt a lot of people and I was involved in a lot of bad things. And, you know, it's, you know, it, you, you end up taking on, or I ended up taking on the role quite a bit as a confessor, right? And I would listen to people just share with me kind of that stuff that they didn't want to share with other family members. Um, they want to talk to their family about how they made their money or that kind of stuff. Um, but this one guy was like, look, you know, I hurt people. It wasn't good, you know, but it was also a long time ago. And I was like, you know, that's, that's okay. And he started crying. And I was, I was like, you know, what, like, what's going on for you right now? And he was like, I don't believe in God. I'm like, you know, okay, like, that's, that's okay. You know, um, I understand how that can be hard for you, but I, I'm not judging you at all. And he's like, I believe in aliens. <laughs> and, you know, and he was like, I really believe in them. And I've been keeping that secret for my wife for like 30 years and my kids. And he had this amazing like internal theology of, of, of extraterrestrials. Like, you know, 
um, being in, in, you know, relationship to him and, um, and it totally worked for him. Um, I think, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. There are, we tend to kind of categorize the world um, by a certain set number of philosophical systems. But when we look at like all the people in the world, we all experience life differently, right? And so you might be inspired by Buddhism, I'm inspired by Buddhism, right? But you might be inspired by something else as well, right? And, and, and myself as well. And so, uh, and they could be different things and at odds. And I think that there is something to be said about a, you could call it a higher power or, you know, the Buddhist tradition will talk about Buddha nature, that there's, there's this innate part of us that I think tends to connect towards something positive and something meaningful, um, especially in the dying process. And I, I, there was one person I wrote about in the book who had this recurring dream of a man standing outside of his apartment window um, in the dark, like, in, in, like his body was kind of uh, in shadow, so he couldn't see him but he was kind of scared and we would sit together and, and the hospice patient was like, you know, he's out there right now. Like I can feel it. And I spent time with him um, exploring who this person could be, you know, does it have to be a scary person? Right. And over time we kind of landed on the fact that maybe this guy is your ferryman. Maybe this is going to be the person who's going to guide you to the afterworld, you know, where, wherever it is you want to go. And when he had that shift, um, we had, we, like I led him in this visualization kind of meditation around offering him, the ferryman, a gift. And I was like, just make it a gift that's basic. You know, it doesn't have to be anything elaborate. And he offered it to him and then, and the next day the patient died. Um, and he had been holding on so tightly to, you know, he's like, I, that, that guy's terrifying. I don't want to go near him, you know? Um, so I think that we hold so much power to connect innately to the vastness of the universe, right? And so it could be, you know, in the form of God or it could be in the form of Buddha or the, you know, Shiva or you know, Kali, Durga, you know, whatever. Um, and, and the name to me isn't important you know, or the, the, the appearance of that um, divinity really isn't important as much as um, supporting people to be able to, to touch that. Um, and, you know, again, I, I've probably been witness or part of over 300 active deaths, you know, in hospice um, over, over the, uh, the time I was working. And I can only really think of two exp death experiences that quote unquote went badly for, for the person who died. You know, most, most other people, um, even if they suffered from kind of, you know, advanced dementia or, or Parkinson's or, you know, Alzheimer's still died very peacefully. Um, which I, t I tend to take um, as, as something reassuring, you know, like, um, I think that there's something innate about humans and maybe all beings where 
it's actually maybe, you know, maybe we're just naturally going to connect to expansiveness, but expansiveness is scary because again, kind of going back to Buddhist practice, like it, it's not referential. It's not, it's not referent to our ego identity, right? That kind of expansiveness is beyond ego. And that's what's scary. It's scary to let go of, you know, being mad and being a dad and being a partner and all that stuff when that's meaningful to you, right? But then at the same time, you know, when we're right on the edge of the membrane of expansiveness, you just peer, the death process is piercing through that membrane into potentially into like, you know, the infinite, into a vast awakened mind which is both scary and liberating at the same time. And that's, that's kind of like our weird paradox, I think, as humans, where we do the most, you know, we create the most beauty uh, in the name of faith and spiritual practice. But then out of fear, we create horror as well. You know? And I think that there, there's something very um, powerful in that contradiction and in that paradox that, um, we can, somebody can tell someone else about it, but it isn't until we kind of like kids, like get our fingers dirty playing in our experience and playing in our story and our history and this, you know, inner symbology that's important to us, um, that we begin to understand um, what that's all about. Um, and then once we d develop some kind of internal mastery of it, then I don't think awakening is that, difficult but the process is messy and you know messiness is something that we're kind of all taught is bad <laughs> mm. Mm. well you shared a lot of things there i find fascinating and what's kind of coming up for me as i listen is the idea that i i don't know if it's the tibetan book of the dead or where i heard this but it was the idea that through meditation it allows you to consciously enter dreams and then also at, at the death point to consciously go into the next world to bring that amount of awareness to the next phase. And obviously that kind of awareness would change your life. And you also spoke about, you know, that, that source, that bigger thing. And through meditation, I've experienced that and some very, very profound experiences of, of an awareness or a consciousness or an experience that's way beyond my understanding. I don't have the language for it because it's something that my mind can't perceive at all. It's like an ant trying to speak English if it became conscious. It's just, it's not in the vocabulary of understanding. I think Alan Watts says something like, it's like a knife trying to cut itself. It's just so beyond that, but, but it's there. It's always there. And the times I've had those experiences that it made me not afraid of death. I've had four, I think, near death experiences and, and, uh, one of them I was afraid because I was, I was going to get hurt. It was going to be a painful one. I was afraid of that. <laughs> it's going to fall off a cliff, for freak's sake. Um, so I was like, oh, shoot. Um, but I wasn't like afraid of, of what was next. I felt very comfortable in knowing that whatever this consciousness is, whatever the heck's happening here, the simulation is, I'm going to be okay. I, that was how I feel. I don't know for sure because I haven't been to, on the other side. So I'll say that. Um, but it's because of meditation and taking my awareness and shooting it into the abyss, into the thing that connects everything. And it takes practice and it takes time. But what it makes you realize is how small your consciousness is and how very limited it is in understanding anything. 
in, in how it functions because even as your identity moving around the day and everything that you've learned, that consciousness has to pull up the memory, recall it properly, articulate it. It's, it's operating on such a minimal amount of awareness where all of you is, is operating at such a higher, deeper level of awareness. So I'm curious your thoughts on you know, what you feel like an awakening is like for an individual and how maybe somebody would have that awakening. And also Buddhism does talk about uh, life without suffering, more happiness. Do you, what would you say to people who, who are suffering and just how they can have a little bit more peace, a little bit more calm and a little less suffering in their lives? Yeah. So um, with the, with the latter point, I mean, you know, I would kind of go back to just basic meditation, like, you know, start at cultivating awareness of mind right and in in um so in in the vajrayana or tantric uh tradition we talk about um uh nature of mind so practices that are are, are geared towards understanding what mind is right because uh shamatha is great right um but it's easily kind of misinterpreted as a, a very basic meditation right focus your mind on your breath and eventually um you also focus your mind on the experience that's happening in the moment. Um, but but what the, the whole goal is to understand the nature of mind. And part of that is where is the mind, right? And um, where is the edge of your mind, right? And where does mind end? Does it have, like, does it end with, with time? You know, or is it this like you know continuum that just exists um you know across time and space um and so you know it's it's meditation is is potentially depending on the kinds you're doing it can it's such an amazing practice because the same instruction after five years of practicing it is like a pearl it's just like treasured jewel that can unlock you know your experience of mind uh in in such a deep way um as as you mentioned earlier but it is a practice right so um there's a lot of wrestling over the course of a quote-unquote career as a meditator um where you know sometimes you go through these dull patches sometimes you're just passionate about it um but awakening experiences are possible and they're they're possible in many ways i mean i when i, I was once sitting in this interdisciplinary team meeting in in hosp, you know hospice where doctors and everyone's talking and then i remembered that i had a near-death experience when i was young um i must have been like five years old and that convinced me in the moment that that is why I was so comfortable in hospice because that experience was so visceral. This, you know, in that moment, I had this experience, I had fallen into a pool as a, as a young kid and I didn't know how to swim. And after a certain period of time, I don't know how long it was, the vantage point from that experience was like from 30 feet above. So I saw myself floating in the pool face down saw myself sinking down into the pool and then i saw my aunt jump in and grab me 
and then pulled me up. And then the moment she pulled me up, it was my locus of, of, of awareness was my body. So it was just like sucked right back into me. And so I'll go back to that experience and I can still kind of like viscerally feel it. Right. But that for me, um, is, is a form of proof that there is an experience of awareness that's much bigger than this one singular Justin or this one singular Matt or this one singular, you know, person, you know, the experience of the person watching um, this podcast. Uh, and there are, there are other kinds of meditation experiences um, that can happen where, where we're um, basically faced with understanding how limited this ego experience um, of, of, you know, like illusion of myself as a singular being living um, for pra all practical purposes um, at odds with everything around us, right? Which, which is what causes us to accumulate things, which is what causes us to have conflict with other people, which causes us to, you know, I mean, you could even say destroy the environment. Like we're just kind of senselessly using things, right? When we're able to um, really hone our practice and, and we're, we, we can have these experiences that allow us to rest in a sense of vastness that allows us to understand and appreciate the order of complexity, but also the simplicity of everything. Everything on earth and in this universe is happening right? Automatically. It's just happening. We're the ones when we get stuck in this ego identity that are like, oh, oh, <laughs> like, you know, holding on and grabbing and we just are pushing away like, oh, I, I don't want to have that experience, right? But that's all, that's all an illusionary, like, relationship to whatever is happening, you know? And that's the interesting thing about the death process, too. It's innate it's going to happen. It's going to happen to you and me and everybody else. And yet when you get into the kind of life cycle of the experience of death, it becomes for some people such an emotional time suck <laughs> because like, you know, it's just like great drama that, that just has no ending and is just, you know, intense. Um, but so there, there, there are practices in the tantric tradition like Mahamudra, Dzogchen. Um, they're kind of more um, six yogas of Naropa kind of practices that are aimed at, at being able to maintain awareness of the, the essence of mind in waking state. And then as you point out, in dreaming state and then death state and post-death state. And in the beginning, these are a little bit like calisthenics. Like, you know, they're practices that you do to kind of build up your ability to maintain an awareness. But over time, like a good athlete or a good artist, um, these things become very automatic, right? So it's not really that, you know, you have to do 50 push-ups every day to remain, you know, strong and limber. Um, but you do a certain amount, you have the experiences that end up um, formulating the solid ground for your practice. And then you can just move around, 
you know? Um, so it's a training like any other training. Um, but once you, once you attain some level of mastery, and it doesn't have to be, you know, mastery, mastery, um, you're, you're able to have a sense of lightness around um, just the everyday experience of life. And you'll, you'll meet people. I mean, the Dalai Lama is like this. You know, there are a lot of, you know, Buddhist teachers and teachers of a variety of faith traditions where life is just happening. You know, they're not taking it so personally. Right. So like, again, we live in this incredibly complex time of a tremendous amount of um, angst and conflict. And I think in, in our hearts, we just want to let that go. Right. But in order to let it go, we need to take responsibility for for all the energy we put we invest in holding on. You know, and so tantric practice is. Um, it's about just letting go. Hmm. I really like that last part. It reminds me of the Zen teaching. I think there's three of them. It's a non-resistance, non-resistance, non-judgment, maybe non-attachment. It's about the same as resistance. I'd have to look into it, but you know, it's just resisting life. You, you, you know, it's like, it's not supposed to be this way. You know, you always want to change something. And like you said, it's the grasping, you know, it's like we're forcing and we're just forcing in our mind and we're forcing energetically. And even with meditation, you notice that you're grasping at thoughts and that's the idea. And that's how we're living. And that's a way of, that's, that's a way of like an operating system of your consciousness. Let's just say it's like 1991 windows mm -hmm. and it's operating that way. And what Buddhism and what other practices are offering is like, maybe it's 2019 Mac, you know what I mean? But these are ancient operating systems is the ancient Buddhist texts. There's, you know, ancient lineages that are offering a different operating system, but it takes some effort to run the coding because the coding is so freaking ingrained in who you are it's it's ingrained and you got to go in to that hardwiring but once you kind of change the apps you change the operating system a little bit and how it functions it's a whole new thing mm -hmm. and once you have that ability through some training then what how you operate in the world is totally different you feel differently you are inspired more you're in spirit your you just your consciousness is different but yep. it does take a little bit of effort and it does take a little bit of training. And so you got to be willing to suspend disbelief. You got to be willing to try and, and get some feedback. And so for me, I've just kind of tried what, what these suggestions were super intensely, you know, recently last year it was the cold training. Everyone's going nuts about the cold training. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do the cold training to the maximum degree and I'm not going to train and I'm not going to do the breathing. And so, and so I did it and I had a great experience and it was super challenging. And it was just uh, an experience that I can have a, a direct understanding of, of what it did for me. And, and, and so when someone talks about it, um, I can understand them as well. But at the same time, every time I'm doing these practices, it's just to test, you know, it's, it's just to experience and to keep, trying keep doing something keep getting feedback keep engaging and so if everyone's talking about meditation in a way give it a try you know try a different way see see how it works for you see what's going on but because of this mystery around so many of these concepts people end up doing nothing and that operating system and the other thing about the operating system people should understand is that it's designed to save itself it wants everything to stay the same. It doesn't want to be frigged with. That's the way it's set up. And so it doesn't want you. It's going to give you excuses in that operating system not to frig with it. 
And so yeah. that's a part of the, the battle. It's a part of the challenge. So uh, do you want to add anything onto that or you want me to throw a question at you? Um, well, I'll just say like, you know, there's the third portion of the book on, on mind has um, three meditation instructions back from medieval India, um, which are, uh, were revolutionary at the time. And they're still revolutionary right now for, for much the same reason that they're, they're basic and they're beautiful in that way in that they're very uh, simple. Um, and yet the, the, the weird part of, of them is um, training and letting go, you know? So you build this formal meditation training and just letting everything go. Um, and there's something that happens where we need to build up this effort to relax the mind beyond time and space. But in the beginning, it's this weird conceptual framework that we build to hold a mind beyond time and space. Um, so I, I like the analogy that you brought up. Um, and and it's, it, it really is, I think, you know, good meditation practice is really like practicing art where, uh, or music, right? Where you pick up an instrument and in the beginning it's really formal, right? So you learn how to pick or something and, and you're playing and um, you know, you learn exercises. But after a while, when, you're, when you've achieved a level of comfort and mastery of the instrument, it doesn't really matter. Like those things are important, right? But it's more about just playing automatically what's arising, right? Mm. Um, or paint, my dad's a painter, right? So I grew up, um, uh, you know, like watching him make art. And, and that, I think, influenced my meditation practice more than anything else, um, more than anything people in Asia told me. Um, because there's this, and the process of experimentation, and you can't, unless you develop, you know, the, so the subtitle of the book is embodiment and authenticity in Dharma practice. Like, so un, until we learn how to be authentically us in relationship to these instructions and embodied as Matt or as Justin and with all of the strengths and all of the weaknesses that we might have, uh, then we're kind of chasing this operating system that is good right and that that exists you know this this all this like you know crazy way of breaking the coding we have but we need to understand us first you know or or maybe simultaneously to having this meditation um practice um so it's it's like weirdly very complicated and then even weirdly more simple <laughs> than than anything in the world mm. Well, your, your analogy of the music and the instrument, I think, is really amazing. Uh, I love that analogy, too. Can you share the meditation instructions? Yeah, There's, sure. Um, yeah, let, let me um, – I'll pull up one. I mean, this one's um, uh, pretty well-known in the sense that a lot of people have, have written um, it, about it. Uh, and it's just six points. So it's called Tilopa's Six Nails. Um, uh, so Tilopa was this um, uh, tantric yogi who lived um, in um, ninth, 10th century India. Um, and he was kind of the first human teacher in the Karmakagi tradition. Um, but he, so, he, so he developed this, this series of instructions where they maybe arose posthumously. What um, do you mean by human teacher? 
Well, from like, yeah, no, sorry, that might sound weird. Um, so like, you know, every Buddhist tradition kind of like starts from Buddha or, <coughs> excuse me, like a cosmic Buddha, right? It's just like this, like, um, ends up being kind of like an anthropomorphized manifestation of enlightenment, right? So according to the tradition, uh, Tilopa's teacher, te like guru, was Vajradhara, who is not really human and is more like an anthropomorphized experience of awakening, right? So Tilopa was kind of like the first person to um, uh, formulate this, this school of, of Buddhist practice. Um, um, and then it's, you know, it doesn't, it's not really me, it's not really helped by, like in, in, the, in the Tibetan tradition, they anthropomorphize everything. Um, so there's like, you know, female Buddhas that are awakening and male Buddhas that are awakening and they weren't necessarily real people, um, even though you'll see the, the images. Um, but, but so this one is, I like, I really like this translation by Ken McLeod, um, who's, you know, a kind of great boomer um, uh, Buddhist teacher. Um, so the first point is don't recall, let go of what's past. Right. So actually, Matt, I'm going to ask you to just kind of sit in meditation right now. Sure. Can. Yeah, I'd love to. Cool. All right. So just take a moment to um, take a couple of deep breaths and with every inhalation, inhale, um, clear white light. And with every exhalation, just exhale, you know, anything that feels negative or anything you don't want present right now. So in this moment, Focus your breath, focus your, your awareness on your breath. Just allow yourself to feel every inhalation and exhalation. Let your mind settle. And I'll just go through these six points. So don't recall, let go of what has passed. Don't imagine, let go of what may come. Don't think, let go of what is happening now. Don't examine, don't try to figure anything out. Don't control. Don't try to make anything happen. Rest. Relax right now and rest. And so this instruction is really rooted in, in trying to experience the mind's true nature, right? So it's not about past experience. It's not about the anticipatory experience of what's going to happen next, right? Experiencing the mind directly isn't something that we have to be engaged in doing. It's automatic. 
right? It's not something that's new that we need to blend into our experience in this particular moment. Right? Well, that was a that was a really great meditation, and you, you know when I go through it and experience it and just listen to the points, it is everything about the mind. You know, it's it, it, it there's not there's not a missing element there of what the mind may try and do. And one, you know, they're so good in the sense it's like, uh, don't try and figure anything out. And that was the big one for me. I was like, always oh, trying to figure crap out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what I mean, it's not a. And they understood through these practices how the mind works. This is understanding your software and how it works and that's why in zen and in buddhism they'll talk about these things like judgment and comparison and um attachment it's because they've examined they've they've looked at the operating and it's like hey this is what this thing's going to do here's some awareness around that so you can have more freedom and it's not just the mind that is pulling you around then creating a, an emotion then creating an action. And so these are pa paramount things to understand and they seem simple, you know, and unless you do them, you don't really understand how powerful it is. And when, you know, I've been breaking down Zen athlete and teaching that a little bit more and I'm really passionate about it. And, and the reason being is that when I break it down to its simplest form, um, the elements that I want to teach kids are, you know, when you go to take a basketball shot, Mm -hmm. you clear your mind an individual who has the ability to clear their mind in an instant and come into the breath and understand that it's a fundamental shift in consciousness It's a fundamental shift in the quality of your life and so these little tiny points here if you take somebody through those practices and they just go 10 days and they're going to get five minutes to those concepts it's going to seep into their life immediately Mm -hmm. And it takes a lifetime to master because you, but you might get to that instrument a little bit quicker, but you're going to do it with more understanding, more freedom, more happiness, less suffering because, you know, you might judge something, but you won't. Then I, I learned actually on the podcast I was interviewed on today about uh, the two, the two arrows of, of, I don't know if it was Buddha or Krishna or something, but the first arrow is judgment, right? And then the second one is you judging yourself and stabbing yourself for judging. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting that that's what the mind does. And without awareness, we're basically whipping ourselves and making ourselves feel worse when what we need to do is just understand our operating system a little bit better. And there's a reason that these teachings are old. Do you have any idea how old that meditation is? Um, so I want to say ninth century. Ninth century, tenth century. Wow, um, and and that was that's one that is has continuously been practiced um, since then. So I I was taught this in 1997 in in Bodh Gaya, um, site where the Buddha was enlightened by one of my teachers, um, and you know according to the history, you know his teacher received it from his teacher, and it, you know goes all the way back. Um, now I've taught this to correction officers and I've taught this to inmates and I've taught this to hospice patients um, precisely because like, you know, when you're dying, you're either obsessed with the past <laughs> or you're really anticipating what's going to happen next. Right. And if you're incarcerated, um, depending on what your experience is in that moment, you're either racking your brains around like, what the hell did I do to get here, right? Or what the hell am I gonna do to get out of here, right? And, and, and in both cases, you're not really necessarily open up to the experience of this moment right now, 
right? And yeah, there's like, you know, for lack of a better term, there's bullshit and everything, right? There's like, you know, being incarcerated, there's gonna be fear and anxiety and sadness and dejection and anger. But that those, the range of experiences happens at the same time, you know, for somebody who's in the dying process. But with both groups, the thing that causes the arisal of those really difficult emotions is lack of ability to let go and rest, right? When we let go and rest, so it's the same thing as you're saying in, in taking a shot and playing basketball or as a painter, like kind of getting into that zone where you're really just, you're, you know, there is no division between the creative impulse and your arm and the paintbrush and the paint and the canvas, it's all just moving. And you see that with like Japanese ink washes, um, you know, and a lot of, a lot of Buddhist art um, is really about this just automatic expression. When we can express in that way, we let, we don't even let the discursive mind have the room to hold on to create that suffering. Right. Um, so the application of these six nails, we could have applications in finance. So you could have this, you know, applications in, in high level politics or negotiations where, where, where you know, the, there is probably more, there are more pitfalls that the discursive mind can create than one needs, right? So that's kind of like the, the, the kind of, um, you know, Western capitalistic look, way of looking at it. Like this, this will make us more efficient. Um, but I think it's also a testament to the power of these instructions where it, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, these instructions have power, um, but you need to wrestle with them. You need to sit down and be like, you know, let go, you know, let go of what's past. So like, you know, my whole history, let go of what may come. It hasn't even happened yet, but sometimes we're just like, you know, next podcast this, or, you know, like the next book this, or next week or tomorrow, blah, 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 you know, and which is great, right? It's important. We need these things to function. We need calendars <laughs> to be able to know what we're gonna do next month, right? But, but there's also that kind of like neurotic quality to our relationship to past and, and future. Um, but that, that, that act of just letting go and resting is beautiful. And it happens, it can happen anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. Well, Justin, my friend, this has been amazing. Uh, all the insights were great. And I especially love that meditation. And I think that even if people listen to this and they give that meditation a, a try, that for me was was the gold because it's it's such a simple application. And, and what we're talking about, some some of it feels like it's it's out there, but it, but it comes back to something. That's why I like Buddhism is very simple. It's very direct. And you can give it a try. You can try it immediately. And there's a reason why it's, it's lasted this long. And there's a reason why so many people practice it. And there's room, I think, in our modern society for this way of thinking. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a balance. It's a center point. And a lot of what I learned in Zen and in Buddhism from what I study is like, look, especially with the modern world, it's a balance. It's not like you're not doing the task list and things like that. It's just bringing a different level of awareness. And for any high performer, for an athlete, for a high level entrepreneur, for somebody to achieve success, 
in the material world as you know, you can do that and, and have no grounding and be miserable. But if mm -hmm. you can achieve material success of what you'd want to have a home, to have a career, to have a vocation, to uh, have happiness, this, these practices are fundamental because it's your quality of consciousness. And when you have a high quality of consciousness, you can have nothing and you can have everything. And so if you can have both and have that middle way, this is who I am. This is how I'd like to express and probably want to suffer less through understanding how my mind operates and be a little bit more deliberate. It's, it's just such a, it's such a fundamental and transformational thing that we don't need any of, you know, I, I like, you know, I'm in the new age community and I like a lot of the stuff, but there's also a reason why ancient traditions are ancient traditions, you know? And so we can build on those practices and we can have the new stuff too. And there's a reason why the old stuff is still around. So, you know, maybe give it a try. So what I'd like to ask, is there anything that you wish that I'd asked or anything that you want to touch on before we close it out? No, this has been great. <laughs> this has been great. It's been fun. It's been, uh, you know, we've, we've moved around. Um, no, I want to thank you. I mean, it's been a joy to be, you know, on your podcast and um, yeah, you know, you're doing good work. Oh, thanks, man. Well, you're doing really good work too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hospice is it's huge, man. I appreciate what you're doing and who you are and, and helping and having that vocation and uh, doing something that you find meaningful and spreading that message. It's, it's really beautiful. So thank you for what you do. If people want to get a hold of you, if they have any questions, they want to buy your book, which they should go buy your book, where should they go? So you can get the book at uh, amazon.com. Um, you can, you know, small bookstores, or, you know, it's, it's, it's out there. It's uh, distributed by Penguin Random House. So, um, you know, you can look for it on, on Penguin, uh, Penguin's website as well. Uh, and then I have a website, justinvonboydash.com. Um, get in touch. People do. I, you know, I teach students that way uh, and travel around and teach as well, um, you know, when, when people want. Awesome. Amazing. Well, yeah. thanks for everything you're doing. Uh, thanks for coming on the show and sharing what you do. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. Take care. Yeah, my pleasure. See you guys. Peace. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the amazing Justin Von Boydash. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I know that I learned a lot. If you want to spread the vibe and share that message, again, like this information was so amazing. And if you want to help spread the word, please share it on your Facebook. Take a screenshot. Tag me on Instagram. Let me know what you're listening. Um, also, if you have any feedback, if you want me to interview anyone, if you have any insights, if you have any sponsors you might think would be a fit for the show and help keep this thing going, that would be amazing. I want to hear from you guys. So if you send me an email, I definitely will answer it. Um, I love hearing from you guys. For those of you guys who are interested in coaching and you really want to work one-on-one, -on -one, or there's a group of you who want some coaching or training, just hit me up, matt at zenathlete.com. Would love to work with you. And um, thank you so much to my patrons. Thank you to everyone who has left a review on iTunes. That helps immensely. I really appreciate it. And make sure you go to mattbelair.com. Sign up for the email list because January 1st, I'm going to be doing a 21-day challenge. I'll be with you for those 21 days training, showing you what I go through for the start of the year, helping you keep accountable, and also doing training sessions each and every day on different subjects that you guys have been asking for, doing Q&As, and just helping you get the year off uh, to the most powerful and aligned start you can. So if that interests you, uh, make sure to go to mattbelair.com or send me an email and just let me know that you want to do the 21-day challenge coming up in January. And uh, I'm designing that now, so I'm looking for feedback. Would love to hear from you guys. So that wraps it up. 
Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. And let's just wrap it up by coming to a state of peace and coherence. Wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath. And just let it out slowly, filling every cell, every muscle, every fiber of your being with joy, peace, contentment, enthusiasm, connection, inspiration, and ready to take on the rest of the day. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.